this letter to the church, the believers in Ephesus, was written, tradition holds it, by the Apostle Paul, at least 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was a commercial center with access to the waterways. They had a booming economy. The ships were coming and going and facilitating international and domestic trade. They had a thriving economy. And onshore, there were thriving markets. The marketplace was busy. And the architectural endeavors certainly reflected the cultural influences of the Greek and the Roman culture. It was a, it was a diverse community, but amongst the followers of Jesus, the Jewish and the Gentile believers were certainly not on the same page. There was a proclivity, a tendency towards exclusivity and exclusion. They were estranged from one another. So Paul writes this letter that has an overarching theme of unity. Unity in Christ and unity with one another. So therefore this letter, which was written long ago, still holds truth that we can profit from. So in the opening of this letter, Paul identifies himself as one who is an apostle, a messenger, a person sent by Jesus. The letter was addressed to those in Ephesus, but we believe that it was perhaps a letter, a circulatory letter, one to be distributed amongst different communities. And one thing that certainly stands out to me is that the letter is addressed in a way that he, he refers to these audience as saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. The question becomes this. If he were writing this letter today, would he find enough about us? Would he be able to gather enough information that would lead him to address the modern church as saints and the faithful? It's just something to think about. In the context in which this was written, a saint describes the believer, one who is in right relationship with God, 
one who is a recipient of the imputed righteousness through Christ, and one who is led to be a servant of God. So in his greeting, he says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the very opening greeting, we find a blessing within this greeting. His desire for his audience is that God would grant them unmerited favor. That God would freely give to them what they have not earned. He desires God to give them peace. And this word peace is derived from a root word, a Hebrew word that denotes wholeness or completeness, shalom. And shalom is a blessing, a manifestation of divine grace. But then, perhaps targeting the insularity of their thought and the exclusionary practices of the believers, he goes on to, he stops to praise God. He's inspired to write in a Eucharistic way an expression of thanksgiving. He, he then begins to tell his audience of what God has already done. He says that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What I like about this is that we know God blesses people when, when he bestows on them some, some gift whether temporal or spiritual. But the scripture says that he has bestowed on us not some blessing, but every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yes, we are blessed. He goes on to say that, speaking of God, he says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Yes, he chose us to be recipients of the grace and love of God and to share this grace and love of God with our communities. He chose us to be holy, set apart for God's use and glory. He chose us to reflect the, the Imago Dei, or the image of God in this world and in our communities. He predestined us, yes he did, to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It pleased God to do this. It is an expression of his being. It is the character of God. Now there is much controversy over the use of this language, such as chosen and predestined. 
So let me say this. Often this language is used to misguidingly develop the thinking that God has chose a group of people to the neglect of others. And this wayward thinking is further exploited to develop the sad notion of a religious supremacy of one people over another. Mm -hmm. It is a deficient theology that is employed to justify the exploitation of the other. It suggests the identification of a lesser people by God's design. And for some, it grants them a permissive license towards exploitation, murder, rape, violence, slavery, institutionalized racism, inequity, inequality, poverty, injustice, injustice towards global sustainability and the rise of religious supremacist ideologies. But I believe that, and I propose to you today that God has, yes, predestined a path, a path of righteousness through the only begotten Son of God. I believe that God has elected to restore humanity to wholeness by extending the invitation to all through his Son. God made the decision even though the voluntary rejection of God that is articulated through the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, God made the decision that he would provide a covering, a way of reconciliation through his son. For the Bible in its entirety is a story of righteousness prevailing over evil. And this is by God's election, predestination, and choosing. Now he has done this, all of this. He has bestowed this grace on us. He has freely given us this gift in the one that he loves. This gift is freely given to those who are willing to receive. You can't work for it. You can't earn the grace of God. You can't buy it. And you certainly can't sell it. But God, recognizing the frailty of our humanity and knowing the intensity of our struggle, he offers this free gift that comes from his richness and the mercy of his being. And that gift is in and through his son. He lavished on us his grace. He has chosen to lavishly give us. And when I say lavishly, that is to pour out not to hold back, to give more than one is able to receive, to provide immeasurably. 
to bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities or measures. And this, it is being given and it will continue to be given like the coming down of a much needed rainfall in the dry season. A rainfall that saturates the dry earth, a downpouring that enables the planting and the nurturing of a seed that brings forth life. We can either reject this great gift or we can choose to luxuriate ourselves in the goodness of God. Yes, we can draw from the wells of salvation. We can drink of the living water that wants to saturate the, the dryness of the heart and refresh the mind and the spirit and enable the seed that God has planted in us to be nurtured and bring forth life in the name of Jesus. For we know that when God gives, he gives in good measure, pressed down and shaken together. The Bible says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Yes, God has revealed the mystery of his will. Through the creation, the universe, through the written word, through the prophets. And yes, there are mysteries that remain. But according to this text, we have the blessed hope that one day God will bring all things in heaven and on earth together. And in this letter, even those who are estranged from one another, that estrangement was manifesting itself in exclusionary practices and division. His desire is that the believers in Ephesus would know God better. And in this case, knowing him better is not speaking about scriptural knowledge, but implies more than just a casual relationship with God. It implies an intimate relationship that involves dialogue, discovery, inquiry, trust, faith, servanthood, reverence, commitment, worship, prayer, gratefulness, thanksgiving, and giving honor to God through the way in which we serve others 
and the way we live our lives in this world. Paul reminds his audience of the great power of God and that the church should be filled with this power. And the reason for that being filled with the power of God is so that we can represent God in this world. The church should not, in the eyes of others, represent scandal, exploitation, and abuse. For nowadays, the church, in the eyes of many, has become a suspect institution. For some, the open doors of the church have become the gateway to hurt, exploitation, condemnation, and dehumanizing abuse. But now, we have the opportunity to stand up and be the church that God has called us to be. For we are empowered by God to stand up for righteousness, love, justice, peace, compassion, and to introduce healing into our communities. Do you know that the power of God that is in you wants to move through by his power, God raised Jesus from the dead. And by his power, he lifted us from our despair and gives us hope. By his power, he causes the sun to rise and it gives light to the world. By his power, he placed stars in the sky that give the same glorious light in the darkness of the night. By his power, we, the church, are enabled to reflect the light of God into a world that is darkened by sin, greed, power, and corruption. By his power, he heals the sick. And by the power in his word and the good news of the gospel, we can introduce healing in our communities, not only by preaching, and, act, and teaching, but by acting on the word of God. Martin Luther King Jr., he once said that, in spite of the noble affirmations of Christianity, the church has often lagged in its concern for social justice and too often been content to mouth pious irrelevances and sanctimonious trivialities. It has often been so absorbed in a future good over yonder that it forgets the present evils down here. So yes, we can introduce healing into our communities, communities that are sick with hate, division, greed, and injustice, poverty and crime. All of these societal illnesses, shortcomings, and the evil in this world can be and will be overcome by the power of Almighty God.